My name is Eva, and I love to read, especially this book, The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Before I start properly, some of you who have been listening from the very beginning might remember that I actually posted a short review of this book at the very beginning of my podcast adventures back in June of last year. But unfortunately, I had to delete that particular episode as it was posted in a format not allowed by Spotify. So, if you are a long-time listener, here's my new and far longer review. And if this is your first time listening, I bid you a hearty welcome. Umberto Eco, who passed away in 2016, had been a medievalist and professor of semiotics for years before trying his hand as a novelist, and his debut novel, The Name of the Rose, was a triumph. Since publication, it has sold over 50 million copies worldwide and received numerous prizes. It has been written about in many theses and also defended in many PhDs concerning themselves with its meaning and wider context. Whether you have read this book or know the story from the 1986 film starring Sean Connery, or you perhaps are more acquainted with the 2019 miniseries, I'd wager that there are three times as many people who have heard the title of this book than who have actually read this compelling murder mystery set in the late medieval age. The story is narrated by Adso of Melk, an aged monk, who recounts a series of life-changing events in his youth, which all took place over the course of one week in the year 1327. In that year, Atso, a Benedictine novice, is removed from his quiet life at a monastery in Melk, a town which is in modern-day Austria, as his father fears for his safety amid the escalating conflict between the Church and the Holy Roman Emperor, a conflict in which Atso's family is embroiled. So, Atso is sent into the guardianship of the learned Franciscan monk, William of Baskerville, and the two of them embark on an arduous journey to a remote monastery in northern Italy to attend a theological disputation. Instead of quiet contemplation, Adso and William find themselves in a dangerous environment with the peace of the monastic community held captive by a sinister mind. William of Baskerville is tasked with looking into a grisly murder, but this one murder soon escalates into a number of very disturbing murders, just as the Inquisition makes its entrance, and the search for truth and what is accepted as truth suddenly becomes not just an article of faith, but a matter of life and death, woven into mysteries from the ancient world, political conspiracies, and the power of the written word.
The novel concludes in an inferno of obsession, fire and hate, as clarity brings not just peace, but equal amounts of grief, horror, and the realization that truth is as ever elusive. This book has the skeletal frame of a murder mystery, but it is really genre-defying to the extreme, for it is as much driven by character, symbols, themes, as well as plot. There are, for example, several passages filled with references to obscure ancient texts, some fictional, some historical, while other chapters deal with the minutiae of theological discussions seen from the point of view of learned men in the medieval age. In fact, the disputation Adso and William attend has two very important topics which were of great interest to the medieval church. The first topic is the role of the church in the political sphere, and the other discussion is whether Jesus himself owned his own possessions. Now, this might seem like a rather small detail to us today, but in the 14th century it was a subject of great concern, for it touched on whether the church could and should accumulate wealth as it had increasingly done through the 1300s. So the topic of whether Jesus owned his own possessions was in connection to whether the church should own wealth or whether it should abstain from ownership, such as the contemporary Franciscans like William claimed would be the right, the good, and the beautiful way to live. Though the story is immersed in a myriad of themes, I will only emphasize two in this podcast. The first theme is the search for and insistence on the exploration of truth. The other theme is compassion versus arrogance. Now, the first and arguably most scholarly poured over theme of this novel is truth. Umberto Eco essentially writes a complicated defense for truth, truth as it manifests, truth as it is believed, truth as it is opposed, and truth as it is set in order in our world. Umberto Eco brilliantly used the literary device of mirroring the layers of the wider world with the experiences of the main characters. And so, just as emperors and popes fight, in quite literal terms, over the right to define divine truth, so too does William of Baskerville end up fighting against someone determined to define absolute truth for everyone else. Umberto Eco's background in semiotics comes to the fore as he explores through symbols and language how institutions and people interpret meaningful truth. The mystery in the novel concerns the Book of Comedy by Aristotle, a book which in our world is recognized as being lost 
but in the world of this novel, the book is thought to be lost. It is searched for by many, desired by some, and feared by a few, and though warned against the pursuit of it, William of Baskerville too desires it for the knowledge it contains, which, according to William, will magnify the quantity of truth in the world, as well as qualifying the very definition of truth as people see it. For William, then, the fear of truth must never defeat the faith in truth. This sets William of Baskerville right opposite the antagonist, whose views on truth, and not least whose opinions on who should know the truth, differ greatly from William's. The character William of Baskerville was inspired by the 14th century philosopher and Franciscan monk William of Ockham, he of Ockham's razor fame, who, like William of Baskerville, also saw himself embroiled in many of the political and theological controversies of his age. The name William of Baskerville was said to be an homage to the character of Sherlock Holmes, who himself challenged superstition and beliefs in the story The Hound of the Baskervilles. That is a novel and a story that I have also reviewed on this podcast. At the onset, Adso of Melk is portrayed as a rather timid young man. His life, until his meeting with William of Baskerville, has been one of comfort and cloistered seclusion. When he meets the wider world, there are things that frighten him, but far more things leave him in awe, such as William's eyeglasses and instruments of measurement which William carries around with him everywhere. Adso's previously so well-ordered life and his family's influence have nurtured in him a particular outlook on existence. Yet his natural inclination is to be sensual, inquisitive, and not least, he is by instinct compassionate, and this comes ever more to the fore as the story progresses. That so then is a symbol of nature and nurture in the young soul. His elder teacher, William of Baskerville, is written as being somewhat impatient when knowledge is too slowly digested by those around him. He is a man forever searching for new discoveries, new truths, new knowledge, new insight into the outer world as well as the inner mind. Yet he too leans towards compassion, but Umberto Eco especially uses the character of William of Baskerville to portray the duality of faith and reason. William uses logic to solve his problems, and he is often correct in his reasoning, yet his conclusions, that which he ultimately believes and puts his faith in, is not always right. This turns him humble, at least in the end, 
For even as he is intelligent, William of Baskerville can also be kind without arrogance. This trait puts him in opposition to the antagonist, whose intelligence is a match for William's. Yet the antagonist's intelligence and knowledge has caused this person to become arrogant and also caused this person to reserve the right to judge what others should, could, or must know. This is a story of dogma versus new discoveries, and it is a story of the use of dogma in tumultuous times when those who fear the uncertainty of the future might, with dogma, try to silence opposing voices. But it is also a story about a joyful inquiry winning over fearful containment. While the murder mystery is the driving plot of the book, the book itself is a mystery wrapped in an enigma, to use that well-known quote. For the title of this book is in itself a mystery, with Umberto Eco always insisting that each reader should be afforded the opportunity to form their own theory. So, whatever you think the name of the rose actually means, Umberto Eco would argue that if you can compellingly and convincingly argue for your own theory, well then, your own theory of what the name of the rose means might actually be right. This book really demands your full attention when you're reading it, but it will also hold your attention with its beautifully crafted arguments. And one thing that I love about all Umberto Eco's books is his belief that his readers will get there. He trusts us with his story and simply expects us to be, well, clever like him. Umberto Eco is not one of those authors to talk down to his audience. You know, we've all read those books where at some point we think, yes, thanks, I get it, he's the bad guy, she's the good girl, how slow do you actually think I am? Umberto Eco doesn't write like that. He seems to me to have written this book much in the way that William of Baskerville would write a book, with a keen, sometimes meandering mind, but writing highly intelligently, but also with wit, with humour, and without that particular kind of arrogance which sometimes accompanies a wealth of intelligence. Well, I absolutely love this book, but it is sometimes worth pondering why this novel achieved such huge success from its publication and still enjoys the status of an instant classic, because it was not a given that it would go this way. It was published in 1980, and at the time, historical fiction did not have this million-dollar audience that it has today. Today, historical fiction, seasoned with a little bit of historical what-if, has probably surpassed the detective novel as the premier genre literature. While Sir Walter Scott, 
did make the historical novel a thing, as it were, in the early 19th century. By the golden age of detective fiction in the 1920s and 1930s, that genre had all but conquered the ground of popular fiction. So the historical novels of the early 1980s were all published in small editions, and famously, Hilary Mantel's first historical novel, A Place of Greater Safety, which is set during the French Revolution, was completed in 1979, yet it took her ages to find a publisher willing to take on a longer historical novel at the time. So, when The Name of the Rose was published in 1980, it opened doors for many other novels of this nature, and did so first and foremost by telling a story set in the medieval period, an age that then, in the 1990s, again would become a favourite time period for historical fiction. If you have seen the film or the miniseries, you have a very good starting point to delve into this novel, but if you have only seen the film or the miniseries, you have only glimpsed a tenth of the jewels hidden in this book. I would recommend this novel to anyone and everyone. It is simply a matter of how you read it, whether that be in smaller doses or, like me, with great chunks of chapter on a Sunday morning. This book is worth a read, no matter your favoured genre, because The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco is an absolutely brilliant achievement. I hope you liked this episode, which is quite a bit longer than my usual ones. If you did like it, would you consider leaving a like or telling your friends about this podcast, as it really does help the algorithm? Until the next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.